Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with David Miller, Ph.D., president of the American Association of Suicidology, AAS, the oldest and largest membership organization in the U.S., devoted to understanding and preventing suicide, as well as supporting those affected by it. He's associate professor of school psychology at the University of Albany, has published widely in the area of youth suicidal behavior and school-based suicide prevention, and is the author of the book Child and Adolescent Suicidal Behavior, School-Based Prevention Assessment and Intervention, published by Guilford Press. Welcome, Dr. David Miller. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Have you ever thought about committing suicide? I have not. It's a serious question. I mean, you know. It is. A lot of people think about it at least once or twice in their lives, don't they? A great many people think about it. In fact, when we talk about suicide, I think it's important to talk about suicidal behavior generally. That's one of the reasons I entitled my book, Child and Adolescent Suicidal Behavior. What does that mean? Suicidal behavior is a broader construct than suicide alone. Obviously, we're most concerned about those people who actually die by suicide, but a great many people engage in other less serious but still very serious suicidal behaviors. So give me an example. Well, for example, suicidal behavior is really on a continuum, beginning with suicidal ideation. That is, those people who seriously, genuinely think about killing themselves, not in an abstract way, gee, I wonder what it would be like to die, Mm. but are actually contemplating it. A more serious level would be those who make, in addition to engaging in suicidal ideation, make plans to die by suicide, Hmm. serious plans. Many people seriously think about suicide, but don't make plans to do it. Some people seriously think about it, make plans to do it, but then don't attempt it. Some people seriously think about it, make plans to do it, and actually attempt it, but don't actually die by suicide. All of those individuals whether they engage in suicidal ideation, make suicidal plans, or attempt suicide, as well as those who die by it, are engaging in suicidal behavior. So let me ask you a question. Let's take something, the recent escape in upstate New York from the Clinton uh, Correction Facility of two people. At least one person has written that this might have been an example of suicide by cop, meaning you put yourself out there and you're not willing to go back in, and if you have to let the cop kill you, and we've heard about suicide by cop in other places. What category would that fall into? Suicide by cop does occur. It's difficult to identify, however, because there are some situations, including the recent escape, where the person was firing, presumably at police officers, and may have been trying to genuinely to escape. There are other instances, however, where some individuals have been found firing at police officers in order to get them to fire. It was found that the person had blanks in their gun. In other words, although it appeared like they were shooting at police officers, the person doing it realized that that wasn't going to happen. In those cases, it could be considered a case of suicide by cop, but they're very difficult to determine. Then what about religious motivation? I mean, we see people uh, pouring gasoline on top of themselves wanting to make a point. Does that count? It does in 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 the technical definition of suicide. For example, you have the case of suicide bombers in the Middle East, which makes the news quite frequently, as we all know. An individual named Adam Langford has authored a recent book that's caused quite a stir in the field of suicide prevention called The Myth of Martyrdom, in which he provides very compelling data that suicide bombers are often driven primarily by suicidal impulses rather than the impulses to defend their faith, their religion, or their country. Although in many of those cultures, suicide is stigmatized and suicidal people are highly stigmatized, as they often are in our country, even more so, in fact. And Langford's provided some pretty compelling data that suggests a lot of these people, although they may very well and typically do often have political motivations as well, are also experiencing significant mental health problems, seriously wanting to die by suicide, and by becoming a suicide bomber, Mm. it accomplishes two things at once. Mm. You're a psychologist, Ph.D. Have you treated suicidal patients? I've worked in public schools and private schools. I'm a school psychologist by training, and I've worked with a number of children and adolescents who've been suicidal. Fortunately, the children and adolescents I've worked with, none that I know of, died by suicide. Certainly, they didn't while I was working with them. Hmm. But yes, I've, I've worked with a great many. How do you know who's going to commit suicide? It's a very difficult question to answer. We know a great deal 
now about risk factors and warning signs for suicide that we didn't know previously. We have not so much specific profiles, not so much a cookbook, but we have general information that can help guide us that those who are, might be at highest risk for suicide, certain demographic variables, like age what? variables. Give me demographic. Well, there are several. Interestingly, if you look, for example, at the United States in the demography of suicide, the states with the highest suicide rate are almost always in the western part of the United States. States like Alaska, Wyoming, Montana. Now, these states don't have as many suicides per se as a, a much larger state like New York, for example. Mm -hmm. New York has more suicides than many of those states. But percentage-wise. But percentage-wise, New York, Massachusetts are quite low. In fact, the Northeast, in general, has the lowest suicide rate of any geographic region in the United States. Okay, how come? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. There are a variety of reasons that have been reasonably proposed to account for it. When you look at those states that have the highest suicide rate, they tend to be rural states. They tend to be states with a high percentage of gun ownership. And we know that having access to firearms, just having them in your home, is a risk for suicide. Let's pursue that for a moment. That's very interesting because I'm sure we'll get a call from somebody on the gun side who say, you know, nonsense. But it stands to reason, right, David, that somebody who has a gun puts their gun in their mouth or their head and they kill themselves where if they don't have the gun, it would be harder. That's true. And in fact, one of the primary methods and demonstrably most effective methods of suicide prevention is a procedure known as means restriction. That is restricting individuals who are vulnerable to suicide from access to highly lethal weapons. We know, for example, the latest data we have from the CDC, which is from 2013, it always lags behind a few years, is that about 51% of all people in the United States who died by suicide used guns. We know from a recent study that about one in three Americans owns guns, and the average gun owner is a white male, 55 years of age or older. I don't think it's a coincidence that the suicide rate is highest among middle-aged and elderly white males. Getting back to what our previous point about demography, I think it's important to realize that all of this plays together. There's no one simple cause of suicide. Like many things in life, it results from a confluence of factors working together. When we look at the demography of suicide, we see certain patterns. We see white males are at highest risk for it. Any hypothesis as to why? Well, again, I think you look at multiple factors. Who are highest at risk? White males, typically in the western part of the United States. Those states like Wyoming and Alaska, Montana, have sparser populations. They don't have as much of an opportunity to interact with other people. That's been one explanation that's been offered to suggest why the Northeast, with its greater population density, has a lower suicide rate. And by the way, I should add that these are not new developments. You can look 10 years ago and see very similar results. The CDC has data that goes back very many years. And you can compare by various years, and it's very clear. I mean, the evidence is just simply clear and compelling that most suicides occur or the highest proportionally, at least, in the western part of the United States. What else do we know about that? They have fewer mental health facilities because they have fewer people. There is a greater gun culture there. There is what people have described as a culture of honor in western states that's more predominant than in eastern states. And it's not just culture the west. Culture of honor meaning, you know, you have a sense of personal honor. Personal honor, rugged individualism. I need to handle my problems by myself. Mm. Males are at high risk. There's what's referred to as a gender paradox in suicide. About three times as many women than men, including girls, females, rather than males, attempt suicide. But about four times as many males actually die by suicide. One of the things I tell my students is that if we could wave a magic wand and magically eliminate all male suicides in the United States, but do nothing to reduce the suicide rates among females, we'd reduce the suicide rate in the United States by 80%. Because four out of five people who die by suicide, regardless of their age, 
are male. How about the means? I mean, I, every time you mention the word suicide, I think of Marilyn Monroe and the pills. I'm wondering, are there different means for men and women? Most people who die by suicide use guns. Most males who die by suicide use guns. Most women who die by suicide tend to use some form of suffocation or asphyxiation. Meaning what? Hanging. But this can change over time. Many females use guns as well. It's been hypothesized that part of the reason for this gender paradox, the fact that many more women attempt suicide but more men die by it, is because men tend to use, men and boys, males I should say, tend to use more lethal means. An individual, for example, who uses a gun in an attempt to die by suicide will die by suicide approximately 78 to 90 percent of the time, or excuse me, or more. They have a 78 to 90 percent chance of dying. Hmm. It's a much higher level of lethality. The typical adolescent suicide attempter, for example, attempter, mind you, is an adolescent female who ingests pills often in front of another person. That might be considered more of a, a cry of help, as it were, a person who's clearly ambivalent about their suicide. And many people are ambivalent. But when you use a much higher lethal means, like a gun, the chance of actually dying by suicide increases dramatically. We're talking to David Miller, PhD, associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Albany. David, has there been research, I'm sure there has, on why people commit suicide? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. And, and yes, there has. And the short and simple answer is that we don't have one single cause about why people die by suicide. It's a variety of factors, including psychological, biological, social, and cultural. That said, there have been many theories that tend to focus more specifically on why people die by suicide. And one of the strongest right now, quite frankly, and one that's really taken the field by storm in recent years, is Thomas Joyner's interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. And it's taken the field by storm in many ways because it's had emerging and growing empirical support for its validity across a wide variety of populations. And basically, to summarize this theory, it can be summarized fairly quickly. Why do people die by suicide? They die by suicide for two reasons, because they want to and because they can. And that second variable is very important and has been largely ignored by previous theorists. Let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, what gives someone the desire to die by suicide? Many theorists in the past have suggested a variety of factors. Hopelessness, for example, which we know correlates more highly with suicide than does depression, which also correlates quite highly. But many people are hopeless and don't die by suicide. We know that people who are suicidal experience tremendous psychological pain. We also know that many people have serious psychological pain and don't go on to attempt suicide, let alone die by suicide. So those constructs, although helpful, don't really tell us enough. So Joyner and his students and other individuals have looked at this question, and Joyner suggests that what gives people the desire for suicide is a combination of two interpersonal variables. One is perceived burdensomeness, and the other is failed belongingness, and that both of these are necessary to give an individual the desire to die by suicide. That is, I feel like I'm a burden to other people, or I feel like I'm expendable. I don't really have value. People would be better off without me. That's part of it. Then the other variable is failed belongingness. I don't belong. I don't connect. I don't feel connected. The important thing to realize in both of these cases, these are perceptual issues. An individual, for example, can die by suicide, and people might say, I, I don't understand why that happened. He had a lot of friends. Well, he may have a lot of friends, but that individual may have perceived those friendships as somewhat superficial, that he didn't really feel connected. So from Joyner's perspective in this theory, the interpersonal psychological theory, perceived burdensomeness and failed belongingness give one the desire to die by suicide. But Joyner suggests that that's not enough because lots of people have both of those things and won't do it. Why would people do it? Well, for one thing, we, we have a life preservation instinct. Freud talked about the death instinct, but there's no empirical support for that. We have a life preservation instinct he also deep in our about DNA. The, he also talked about the fear of death. Yes, he did. And people do have genuinely a fear of death, and that can be a way to prevent suicide. But the fact of the matter is that the desire for death, according to Joyner, and other people are increasingly seeing the validity of this notion, 
the desire for death by suicide isn't sufficient. You also have to have the ability to do it. Well, what would give one the ability to die by suicide? Essentially, Joyner suggests it's habituation to painful and provocative experiences. That could be exposure to self-injury, engaging in self-injurious behavior, or exposure to frequent death. For example, one of the things we know when we look at occupations related to suicide, just to name three, for example, police officer, member of the armed forces, medical doctor. Three very different professions, but they all have elevated suicide rates compared to many other professions. Well, what do those three very different professions have in common? One answer is they see a lot of death. They often see a lot of violent death. And that habituation to those painful and provocative experiences can essentially serve as practice effects, much like a skydiver jumps out of the airplane for the first time, experiences thrill, but mostly fear. But as they do it more often, they become habituated to it and it becomes less fearful. Hmm. It's suggested, for example, one of the great risk factors we know for dying by suicide is making previous suicide attempts. And those suicide attempts can habituate one to eventually dying by suicide. Now, most people who attempt suicide don't die by suicide later. That's a myth. In fact, 90% of people who attempt suicide attempt it only once and don't die by it. But people who repeatedly do it are at increased risk um, for suicide. Now, we're talking to David Miller, Dr. David Miller, president of the American Association of Suicidology, the oldest and largest membership organization in the U.S. devoted to understanding and preventing suicide. I'm sort of looking at this word, preventing suicide, uh, these words, because there are those people in this country who I know quite well and intimately who will say, I don't want to be a burden to my children Mm -hmm. after my mate leaves or whatever. I don't want to be around. I want to commit suicide. And some people consider Dr. Kevorkian, for example, to be a hero. Some people consider... Um, you know, the idea of no exit to be a, a way to get out of it. You mentioned Freud before. I'm fascinated by that because, of course, Freud talked about Eros and Thanatos and the idea that these two were in contradistinction to each other. You had more love. You, you might want to stay around longer. So, David Miller, I guess I, I want to know whether or not this idea of suicide prevention is always healthy. Maybe people should be allowed to commit suicide. Well, certainly there are those who, who believe that, death with dignity in others, and that has gained a foothold in some areas. A movement like death with dignity, for example, though, is very particular about what needs to transpire in order for that to happen. We have a few states that have accepted that, like Oregon. One has to be terminally ill. One has to consent to do it. There's all sorts of things that have to occur. Although... One can still take a gun. One can still take a pill. Absolutely. And there are some of a more libertarian bent who would suggest that, you know, based on my free will, I should be able to do what I want. Um, you know, that, that's a point of view that, as you point out, many Americans believe. I would suggest, though, that we need to be careful about that. We know, for example, that the overwhelming majority, it's estimated at 90 percent, some people join or others think, put it closer to 100 percent of those individuals who die by suicide have at least one diagnosable mental disorder at the time of their deaths, most typically but not always depression. And so, David, so if somebody gets on an antidepressant, for example, mm -hmm. and they were potentially suicidal before, we see change, right, in terms of the want to commit suicide. That can definitely occur. A antidepressant medication, particularly with adults, has been really the, the success story of psychiatry for the last 50 years. We know that it works. And if Joyner's theory is correct, then eliminating the desire to die by suicide, even if one has the ability to do it, it will not occur. Because within his model, both of those things have to be present, the desire as well as the ability to carry it out. Huh. So let me ask you about this, David, if I can. I'm always fascinated by people and what their specializations become. Your specialization is suicide. You're associate professor, you're writing, you're sought after on all of this, but something made you choose suicide. What was that? Well, I get asked that question a lot. I, I can't say that it was a personal experience, although I, like everyone else, have been touched by suicide in one form or another. When I was in high school, for example, a good friend of mine's sister died by suicide. 
So it's not a personal connection, per se. I don't have a good answer for that except to say this. I became interested in, in suicide prevention in graduate school, I think in large part because what drew me to being a psychologist was helping people who are suffering emotionally. And it's hard to think of a more difficult problem that one has suffering emotionally if you're considering suicide. So that's what drew me to it. I did a paper on that topic in graduate school and became interested in the topic, got involved in the American Association of Suicidology, which is a great organization, and went from there. My wife is a Holocaust scholar. There comes a point at which I don't want to hear it. It's just too down uh, for me. Your family? I have a wife. Yeah. Well, I say, your family, question mark, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> How do they feel about, you know, I mean, another Holocaust scholar would show up in our house. Um, you know, I would say, oh, no. Does it affect them? I don't think it does. My wife is very supportive of my efforts at suicide prevention. She's committed to that as well. She's also a psychologist. I think one of the things that, that helps me with this is some people ask me questions like, well, this is such a depressing subject. Why would you want to write about it or talk about it? I think the way I look at it is this. Suicide, of course, is a depressing subject, but suicide prevention isn't. And there are a few things more important in life than saving a life. And suicide prevention is all about that. If, if we do that effectively, and we can't, I think it's important to realize that. And that's something I hope we can talk about. What are some things that we can do that can prevent suicide? Okay, because we ahead. can do that. Go ahead and talk about it. Well, there are several things. One of the reasons that I think impedes effective suicide prevention in this country and others, because suicide, let's be clear, it's, it's a national as well as an international public health problem. The World Health Organization estimates that about 800,000 people die by suicide on the face of the earth each year. That's more than the number that die by homicide or wars. It's the second leading cause of death in the world among young people ages 15 to 29. In the United States, suicide's the 10th leading cause of death overall, but it's one of the few, and I think only in the top 10, that hasn't really decreased in recent years. It's also the second leading cause of death for young people. So the exigencies, you mentioned the international comparisons. You see people crowded into a ferry getting away from a particularly oppressive regime in Syria or one of these other places and risking death in order to do that to get to a better place. Are the people under the most pressure like those people more likely to commit suicide? I think what we know from research suggests that environmental stressors do play a role, but they play a role in the context of vulnerability. For example, I remember reading in the Chronicle of Higher Education about a, an administrator who died by suicide by jumping from her apartment building. And the article seemed to imply that it was the stresses of being an administrator that led to her suicide. I have no doubt that she led a stressful life and that administration may have contributed to it. But that in and of itself wouldn't be sufficient. So the relationship, let me get this straight, the relationship between stress and suicide is clear. There is a relationship in the sense that people who, who die by suicide report feeling a lot of stress, but so do people who don't die by suicide. The key variable is the having pre-existing vulnerabilities in conjunction with that. For example, you'll sometimes see news media reports that may suggest that an individual jumped to their death because of a romantic breakup. Well, people get broken up with every day in the United States, and the vast majority of them don't die by suicide. Often those stressors are tipping points, if you will, sort of the final stroke that may have pushed them over the edge, but pre-existing vulnerabilities had to be occurring prior to that. As I said mm -hmm. before, the large majority, and perhaps all individuals who die by suicide are experiencing at least one mental health disorder, most typically depression, often combined with hopelessness, but it can be other problems as well, mental health issues, personality disorders, substance abuse disorders, which you know is highly associated with suicide, although not as much as some people think. David Miller, what are the major myths that we find with suicide? There are a lot of myths, and as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think many of these impede suicide prevention efforts. Let me give you one of the most common ones that does, that, that talking about suicide should be avoided because it somehow plants that idea and can therefore increase its probability. We know from research that this is a myth. Talking about suicide 
with someone who is not suicidal will not make them suicidal. Talking about suicide with someone who already is suicidal will not make them suicidal because they already are. Individuals who are suicidal report that when people can speak with them openly and honestly about it, they're better served. I think what happens is that people often suspect that a problem occurs. It's not so much that they're indifferent, that they're afraid. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of poking their business where they don't belong. But one of our mottos at the American Association of Suicidology is that suicide prevention is everyone's business. So when we suspect, for example, that one of our friends or loved ones or colleagues or acquaintances, if we get a feeling from them, if we, if we hear them say something like, I'm not sure life is worth living or they are looking despondent, you know, just checking with them. How are you feeling? What's going on? What can I do to help? And putting the question out there, as I said, talking about suicide isn't going to make someone suicidal. So saying things like, you know, I'm really concerned about you. Are you thinking about hurting yourself or even killing yourself? Putting it out there. So there's a myth. That's a myth. There's other myths as well. One of them is that if someone's really suicidal, there's really little or nothing we can do to stop it. I think a good illustration of this is the Golden Gate Bridge. It's perhaps... Now this is the myth, that there's really nothing we can do to there's, stop it. Exactly. It's a myth. We do know that in the United States, there are more suicides at the Golden Gate Bridge than any other site. The Golden Gate Bridge was constructed, completed in 1937. Since that time, there have been well over 1,000 suicides. We don't know the exact number. We do know about 20 people die by suicide there every year. Although there are plans right now to put up a bridge barrier, those calls have been out since the 1950s and have been consistently rejected on grounds like aesthetics or cost. Although the cost issue is interesting because, you know, they put a bike path up. And when they ask people, well, why put a bike path up? Well, it's because it's a public health issue. Well, so is suicide. I suspect that part of it is the stigma that goes with, with suicidal people and this idea that they can kind of control what they do. But we do know that bridge barriers can be effective. They've been effective in other places. Hmm. We know, for example, that with the Golden Gate Bridge, it was a classic study done many years ago, 1978, for example, a long time ago, in which an individual named Richard Seiden was able to collect data on 515 people who had been restrained from jumping off the bridge from 1937 to 1971. 515. And he wanted to see how many of those people later died by suicide. Now, one would think that if those people were restrained from doing it, stopped in that particular moment in time, that they'd have a high probability of later dying by suicide at some other place, at some other time, and perhaps by some other means. He found that 94% of those individuals many of which had died, did not die by suicide. They'd either died by their causes or they were still alive. How can we always tell intention? For example, somebody dies in a car crash. I knew somebody who was a mental health practitioner. You're not going to like the story, but a guy comes to him and says, you know, I tried to commit suicide. And he said, how did you do it? He said, I aimed my car at a tree. And the guy said, well, what happened? He said, I missed. And the treater said, but there were a lot of other trees. You know, I mean, it sounds a little cruel, but nevertheless, how do we know whether somebody committed suicide by driving into traffic or whether they just drove into traffic? We often don't. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that the suicide rate as high as it is, is most likely underreported mm -hmm. because there are instances like that. When coroners, for example, if there's a suicide note, that makes it pretty compelling. However, most people who die by suicide don't leave a suicide note. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You know, sometimes a car crash can look suspicious. There was no rain or other weather impediments that could have caused it. On the other hand, it's, it's difficult to tell. Hmm. Let's talk, since everybody's talking about it now, about incarceration. That sounds like a good place to get some data. You get the Clinton Correctional Facility. You get these two guys taking off. We have heard, at least anecdotally, that one of them said, hey, if I don't get away with it, I don't want to live talking about depression, talking about suicide, talking about suicide by cop. We talked about all of that already. But are prisons places where we basically grow suicide? Prisons, by their, their very nature, are places that certainly could lead a person potentially to become more suicidal. And there are a lot of situations where people could develop the desire to do it based on certain environmental situations that they find themselves in. For example, other than prisons? Well, when we look at the variables that contribute to suicide, a lot of people psychologically feel trapped. When we look at certain 
warning signs, for example, a common denominator among people who feel suicidal is, I feel trapped, and they often feel there's no way out. And in some situations, they might be right, but in many other cases, the vast majority, in fact, they do have options, but they engage in a sort of cognitive constriction where they see that they have no choices. Mm. An individual who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, the vast majority who do jump will die, either from drowning or from the impact of falling. Well over 90% do. Interesting, the few people that have survived hmm. did not later die by suicide. One individual who jumped, for example, as he leaped over the bridge just before, said to himself, you know, I just don't have any choices. I've got to do this. And as he leaped over, he realized, wait a minute, what am I talking about? I have lots of choices, except one, I can't choose not to have jumped off this bridge. And while he was plummeting down, he was praying that he wouldn't die. And he didn't. And you just have to wonder how many people had that thought as they were plummeting to their deaths. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the prisons again, if we can. Somebody's, you know, sentenced to life in prison, no possibility of parole. We can put them on a suicide watch for only so long. But the methodologies for suicide will always be there. We may take their belt away. We may take their shoelaces away. We may even take their sheets away so that they can't hang themselves. We can have somebody come and look in the cell every five minutes. But surely one could think of ways to commit suicide that transcends all of that. One could, for example, hold their breath. <laughs> I mean, I'm just making that up, but there are ways to do it. Can you really prevent somebody from stopping suicide? I think you can. And I think there's lots of evidence that suggests that you can. That doesn't mean we can prevent every single person from dying by suicide. But we can certainly prevent more than we currently do. I mentioned the idea of the Golden Gate Bridge, the fact that those people who were stopped, 94% of them later did not die by suicide. By the way, other studies have looked at when they've asked people, how many people do you think would die by suicide if they were prevented from jumping? And most people think that at some point in the future, those people will die by suicide. And that's just not true. That's another myth. It's a myth. And we know that means restriction works. We know that suicide rates are elevated among those individuals who have access to guns that are increased if they have more access to guns. That's not an argument for gun control. We have people, there's a place up at Harvard University called Means Matter, which does a lot of work with gun shop owners in training people who buy firearms about suicide prevention, about safety, about storing firearms. Means restriction doesn't make people taking people's guns away. It means taking the guns away, at least for a period of time, from very vulnerable people. We know that suicidal thoughts, behaviors often wax and wane in certain individuals, mm. and certain environmental stressors can increase that. But once the crisis passes, their suicidal behavior often decreases as well. Hmm. Any other major myths? One myth that's frequently encountered is when you ask people, what month of the year are people most likely to die by suicide? Hmm. And they frequently say, December. Of course. Turns out the data is very clear on this. Suicide rates peak somewhat in the spring, but it's not a huge spike. When you look at the data across all 12 months of the year, it's fairly evenly distributed with, again, somewhat of a spike in the spring. But there is one month where suicide rates are clearly, year in and year out, the lowest, December. Now, why would that be the case? It's been hypothesized, and I think this is a very reasonable assumption, that, well, what do we know happens in December? The holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. People are always talking about depression around those times. They are, but at those times, what happens? People get together. People are connected. We know from the data, it's very clear on this, that suicide rates go down just before, during, and just after major holidays generally. For example, we have the 4th of July holiday coming up. Suicide rates are usually lower on the 4th of July than they would be, say, on the 8th or 9th of July. Why is that? When a team wins the World Series, for example, or the Super Bowl, suicide rates in the particular city of the winner decline. Why is that? Well, a possible explanation is that it brings people together and gets them connected. Joyner's idea of failed belongingness, when people feel connected to other people interpersonally, 
that desire for suicide decreases. So interestingly, although there's a, this myth that suicide increases in December, it actually decreases then, as it does around Thanksgiving, the 4th of July, and other holidays where people are interacting and getting together. That's a very important thing to understand, that if you can get people connected so they get a sense of belonging, a sense of being cared for in an interpersonal community, however large or small that may be, we can decrease the threat of suicide. You know, David, a study showed years ago that I remember very well that if you played Mozart for kids, they'd be smarter or whatever. Do we have any idea what the effect of music is on suicide? Not really. I don't think there's very compelling data to support that, including the data to support playing Mozart for a kid would make them smarter either, for that matter. There was a study a few years ago that talked about a relationship between country music and suicide. I suspect that some of these are, are related more to other factors. For example, people who are more likely to listen to country music who live in rural populations in western states where there's all sorts of reasons why the suicide rate is higher there, but it would be unrelated to country music. Hmm. And there may also be demographic issues there. Mm -hmm. In other words, people who are, might be attracted, I don't know what the economics of country music are, but I suspect that a large part of the audience lies somewhere in the bottom half of the social economic you know, scale. It's True, although we know suicide really does cut across all socioeconomic factors. Where did you go to college? I went to undergraduate at SUNY Oswego, and I got my doctoral degree from Lehigh University. But what do you think, David, about, I mean, I taught at SUNY for 40 years. My question is that I see a huge difference between kids who go to SUNY and kids who go to, often but not always, independent or private universities. I think that the kids who go to SUNY quite frequently have a single purpose in life, to get a job. If they have a professor who's going to tell them, this is the way I did it, I'm talking about myself now, and mm -hmm. this is why I think it's important, they respect that. If they get a guy who's turning over his notes and the 1,500th time and you know reading the same garbage, they are not as related to their purpose, which is pleasing their parents, getting a job, and sometimes that constriction, that need to get a job, to be focused that way, may, and I'm just musing on this, may be a lot healthier than if they were somebody with enormous wealth who had more options. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen any data on suicide rates among private. kids in private versus public. Um, well, interestingly, let me just say, there's a library at NYU in New York City, which is very famous because people were jumping off the top of this thing and they had a problem with it. Does that sometimes happen that there are, you already mentioned the Golden Gate Bridge, but there are favorite places to commit suicide from? Well, the Golden Gate Bridge is probably the big one. There have been other things, gorges in Ithaca, at Cornell University, sure. for example. And again, I, I think what prevents people from wanting to put barriers up is this idea this myth that, well, if we prevent it here, it's just going to happen somewhere else. It's a term known as method substitution. In other words, if you start taking this means away from them, they'll just do it in another way. But there's lots of evidence to support that that doesn't necessarily happen. There was a movement in Great Britain in the 1970s when there were a great many people dying by suicide due to carbon monoxide poisoning, which they could do in their own homes mm. because the heating gas emitted a certain level of toxicity. The federal government did a movement to eliminate that toxic gas in those homes that covered a great many communities. Now, one would think that the suicide rate would be unchanged by that that in fact those people who no longer died by carbon monoxide poisoning would use some other means, but the suicide rate would stay the same. That did not occur. The suicide rate went down, and it stayed down even during more difficult economic conditions. Because? Well, we don't know why, but a reasonable hypothesis would be that people who were highly vulnerable to suicide in particular moments in their lives, had quick and easy access to a way to do it, in this case, in their own homes, mm, just ingesting like toxic gas, just like a gun. Yeah. Making it more difficult and removing that means, not impossible, obviously those people could have killed themselves in any number of ways, but it would have been more difficult and, it, and they were able to develop over a period of time because this happened within the context of a particular moment of crisis, they were able to get through that. Mm. 
By the way, one thing I should add, too, that, that's a very common method, and this is common even on suicide prevention websites, is that suicide is a highly impulsive act. We have increasing evidence to suggest, a paper published very recently looked at this topic extensively and received a lot of attention, that people who are suicidal are indeed not impulsive. It often looks that way. But people who typically attempt or die by suicide have thought about it for weeks, months, and in some cases, years. So it isn't as if somebody's walking across the Golden Gate Bridge and says, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just do it right now. No. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence of that. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to know about this business about how do we know if our best friend, my best friend did commit suicide. How do we know if somebody is going, and I've thought about that a lot. Of course, I hadn't talked to him for years. Mm-hmm. But what are the signs that we should know about? Well, I mentioned a little bit of the risk factors before that we know about, but those can't really tell us in the immediate situation about I think what you're really looking for is, you know, what are the, what are the warning yeah, signs? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, you're, you're a pro. I'm talking to my friends or my students or somebody. They come into the office, and I'm sitting there with them, and I say, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. At AAS, um, the American Association of Suicidology, we, we tried to develop a mnemonic that might help people remember this. And we came up with one that's not the best, <laughs> but it does provide some guidance. And it, the mnemonic is, is path warm? I-S-P-A-T-H-W-A-R-M, is path warm. I stands for ideation, suicidal ideation. So if you're with a friend or acquaintance and they're talking about suicidal thoughts, you know, obviously that's a key warning sign. Substance abuse. We know that individuals who are at risk for suicide have higher rates of substance abuse. To dull the pain, we think? Often we think to dull the pain, yes. P stands for purposelessness, people talking about, I don't have a purpose, mm. a lack of meaning. A stands for anxiety. We know that people who are suicidal often, as I said before, experience at least one or more mental health problems. These conclude anxiety, um, panic attacks, other forms of anxiety. T, trapped. A lot of people who are suicidal feel constricted as if they're out of options. I don't have a choice but to do this. H stands for hopelessness. People who are suicidal often don't think that things will get better. A person can be depressed, seriously depressed, but if in conversation with them they seem to say things like, well, I know things are awful now, but I know someday they're going to get better. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know things are going to get better. That person's probability of suicide plummets because of that, if that's genuine, because they have hope. Individual, however, who feels severely depressed and doesn't think it's ever going to get any better, hmm. the perception of that hopelessness is a possible warning sign. People who withdraw socially, withdrawal can be a sign of, of potential suicide, not interacting as they were before with other people and withdrawing from them. Being angry, excessive anger can be a sign, particularly in males, engaging in reckless behavior and sudden mood changes. Some of those things are signs to look for. It's difficult, though, because often people won't come out and say, I'm feeling suicidal, especially males. I think one of the issues that I think is very important in terms of suicide prevention is understanding this gender paradox, that so many more males die by suicide. Four out of five people who die by suicide in the United States are males. That if we want to seriously decrease the number of suicides in the United States, that this is a public health goal that we have, we really have to target men. And we live in a society, in a culture, in which it's often very difficult for men to admit that they're struggling and that they need help. So, All right, David, what if um, I now have gone through your, your list? What if one of us has a friend who we think is potentially suicidal? What should we do? That's a great question. I think there's a couple things you should think about in that situation. The first one is, as I said before, to ask directly about their suicidal behavior. You know, to, to express the fact that we are care about them, we want to help them, and asking them directly, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about killing yourself? And if you get a sense that they are, letting them know, I care about you, I want you to get help, not leaving them alone, don't leave them alone. Well, everybody to, has to be left alone. Well, 
everyone has to be left alone. But if, if, if you're talking to someone and they're seriously talking about being suicidal, it's not a good idea just to say, well, I'll see you next week and good luck with things. In that kind of situation, I think it would be a, a wise and prudent to express to that person how much you care about them. And I'd really like to see you get help. Why don't we go down to the emergency room? the local mental health center, so you can talk to someone about this. Well, but is there help available? My wife and I once were looking around, and we, we thought we had somebody on our hands who could do damage themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we investigated. We called people, mental health professionals and others. Mm-hmm. In the old days, somebody like that might have been put into one of New York State's institutions. Mm-hmm. But now we have, for want of a better term, some people object to it, deinstitutionalized. Mm-hmm. And what we kept hearing was, that nobody was going to go into one of these hospitals unless they were potentially risky for someone else or to themselves. Mm -hmm. But how do you prove that? It's a real problem. You know, hospitals, especially today, even for a person who is admitted to a psychiatric hospital, is usually only there for a very short stay. It, It should really be considered containment and a holding tank to prevent that person from dying by suicide although we know that many people actually still do die by suicide in in hospitals. And that's not because hospitalization causes suicide. It's that the the mental health problems that underlie suicide are associated with it so strongly that obviously uh, that's going to be a key variable that's going to lead to hospitalization itself. It's a real problem I think we have in our society about having mental health clinics and facilities. And you're quite right. Often an individual won't be hospitalized unless they are saying, I'm planning on killing myself. All right, let's stop there and ask you this question, David Miller. What if, in fact, somebody's listening right now, says, you know, I really think I am suicidal. What should they do? One thing I would recommend to anyone who's feeling suicidal is is calling a national lifeline. Hmm. Um, that number is 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK. That's staffed by competent professionals 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Are there enough of them? There appear to be. Um, It's a growing network. People can get help and do get help immediately. There's also local crisis hotlines where people can get help. Crisis hotlines can do tremendous good. A potential problem with them, unfortunately, and this isn't so much a problem with crisis hotlines themselves as how they're utilized, is that People who call crisis hotlines often report being helped by them. That includes suicidal people as well as non-suicidal people. The problem is the large majority of people who call crisis hotlines are females rather than males. Hmm. Males are more reluctant to call crisis hotlines. Again, this idea that males are less likely to reach out and seek help. This is your paradox. That's the part, fact, that's part the of the fact problem. that the females can ask for the help where the males cannot. And I think part of the issue is... You know, we talked before about the demography of suicide, and we see it more in uh, in Western states. And I don't think it's coincidental, this idea of rugged individualism, um, mm. this idea of dealing with your problems yourself, which is very much a Western ethos. And so-called manly traits. Exactly. And when you put that in conjunction with other variables like quick access to guns, fewer mental health facilities, fewer people in general, it can be a, a recipe for problems. So is suicide, David, is suicide going up? If you looked at a bar graph, is suicide going up in this country or going down? It tends to fluctuate over time. It's gone up recently after being stable for, for a great many years. In the United States, in 2013, we had uh, over 41,000 people die by suicide, according to the CDC. Um, that number's been lower in the past. A lot of that seems to be due to recent increases in middle-aged males Mm -hmm. between the ages of 45 and 65. There's been an an increase in recent years in that demographic. How about sexual behavior and suicide? You know, the male complaints about, you know, basically, I don't have enough sex. Is there anything we can look at, any statistics, any polling, anything like that? Well, one, one of the issues that comes up related to sexual behavior is, is sexual orientation and suicide, mm-hmm. for example, with sure. LGBT individuals, uh, transgender individuals, gay, lesbian individuals, bisexual individuals. The data on that is difficult to collect. We know when we look at coroner reports, for example, they don't list sexual orientation mm-hmm. or sexual identity if we were looking at transgendered people. The data that we do have currently suggests that individuals who are 
in a sexual minority, whether they be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, are at increased risk for suicidal ideation and making suicide attempts than their heterosexual peers. Yeah, but that, that's a good answer. I'm glad you gave it to me. You only have three minutes left. But I'm talking about love interests, uh, whether or not people feel sexual activities in any way related to uh, suicide. I haven't seen data on that specifically, but you know, correlated with that, of course, would be intimacy, closeness, connectedness, and sure. that variable is, as we've mentioned, we know very that. highly related to suicide. So if you, are, if you have those close relationships, you are less likely to commit suicide. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, are you satisfied with your life? Yes, I am. You think this has been a good ride for you so far? I do. You're associate professor. You've written books. How come you're not full professor? <laughs> well, I plan to come up for full professor next year, so I have plans and aspirations to do that. You're terrific. We've been delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. David Miller, president of the American Association of Suicidology, AAS, the oldest and largest membership organization in the U.S. devoted to understanding and preventing suicide. All I can say on behalf of everybody, David, is thank you for doing your work. Thank you. listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.